The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's, it's wonderful to be here this morning. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about is meeting life and how to meet life with compassion. Every day, we encounter things, experiences that confound us, challenge us, hurt us, gladden us, delight us. All of these things are aspects of life. They arise. And whether they give rise to suffering has everything to do with how we respond to those things that arise in our lives. Now, sometimes there's a a feeling around that whole idea of, well, I, I cause my suffering by how I respond to what arises. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. That's not true. It isn't as if there's a way to be and a way not to be, that you're either good or bad, that this is either good or bad. What arises, arises. And the path is about noticing what arises and and knowing how our mind creates so much of what arises and recognizing it in an effort to be free of the automatic response. So that's my short version of the Four Noble Truths. How we respond to anything that happens to us has a lot to do with how we experience it. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Something delightful is pleasant. Something, you know, getting stuck in traffic like I did this morning was unpleasant. So the questions we ask ourselves are, is it pleasant or unpleasant? Do I want it to stay here, or do I want to push it away? Am I trying to reach out for it, or am I hoping it never comes up again? Noticing that first impulse about what has has arisen in our lives is important. Just the noticing. It isn't so much what we do after we notice it. The most important thing is to notice it in the first place because then we have a choice. (laughs) But if you don't notice it, there's no choice. So do we reach for something or do we turn our backs on it? There are the the close-in things, both small and large, like a bad hair day or the birth of a grandchild, both of which I'd like to talk about. There are the faraway things, some of which are natural things, some of which are man-made things. And I'm thinking about the earthquake and tsunami in in Japan and the the nuclear reactor disaster, which is much more man-made. Or perhaps the total unrest in the Mideast, which I find very unsettling. And it's unsettling because people are being killed and because there's no way of knowing how it's going to turn out. 
It's sort of a metaphor for life. We don't know how it's going to turn out. It just, we show up every day and there it is, life. Life, every day, something from a hangnail to the loss of a friend. Everything is there. And everything has a a certain inherent importance. Because all of these things affect how we are in the world and how we experience the world and whether we have happiness in the world or whether we despair and whether there is suffering or whether there is gladness. So I don't discount anything out of that. One of the ideas that I want to explore with you today is the idea of empathy. And the way I'm using the the word empathy is to underscore that it is a way of feeling with, that we become aware of a feeling that is associated with something else that's happening, another person, but it can also be empathy for our own experience because it's quite easy for something to happen and for us to say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to allow that in here. I'm very busy today. And we shut off that, that willingness to be with the feeling. And that's what I'm describing as empathy. One of the reasons this is important is that we can't actually feel empathy for other people unless we can feel it for ourselves. Now, that's kind of a, a radical idea unless you realize that it's about having the ability to feel you know, so there have been a lot of studies about empathy uh, with different animals. And there are other animals besides humans that experience empathy. But not all animals do. And they feel it in different ways, and they experience it in different ways. And there, there is well, one of the, the, the tests, one of the things that seems to come with empathy is an, the the realization that there is a self-awareness, that in the absence of self-awareness, you actually don't register someone else because you don't actually make a distinction <laughs> between self and other. So the more, the more tied we are to not paying attention to how we feel, the more resistant we are to not paying attention to how we feel, the less likely we are to be able to experience what someone else is experiencing. So we have to start with ourselves. So um, I'm going to tell you about my last 12, 14 days. In this very short period of time, I lost a very dear friend to an automobile accident, sudden death, I always thought I would see this person again, but I will not. And whenever I think of him now, I can feel my hands want to make this gesture of lifting, palm out, and reaching toward, like I'd like to touch him one more time. I can feel that urge. Even when I'm sitting here with my hands on my knees, I can feel that urge to lift my hand and reach out and touch this person. So so I lost him. 
My husband's cousin died about a week ago after a four-year-long struggle against cancer. And another very dear friend of mine has just been diagnosed with a moderately aggressive form of prostate cancer. We have also just had our first grandson, who was born just 10 days ago. An absolute delight. A way of totally forgetting everything else that is happening in the miracle of this birth. It's just, it's heaven to, to just be with this baby. Um, we haven't had power for two and a half days so far since the storm on Saturday. And they tell us that they'll give us another update at 8 o'clock tonight. So that's going to be at least three days without power. And what I'm going to tell you about power is that uh, we've become very used to it. (laughs) You know, we actually live in a, a very easy climate. But I don't like being cold. And I walk into the bathroom and I want to flip on the light. There's no light, and I have to carry a flashlight around with me. And by the way, the food is spoiling in the refrigerator. And we get so used to this. I can tell you the first night, it's quite romantic. By the third night, everybody's getting very irritable. (laughs) We go out to get in the car this morning, and my husband's wondering why I'm standing there. Just move around, move around. I, I go over, I get in the car, he gets in the car. I open the door and say, which one of us is going to open the garage door? (laughs) Because the automatic garage door doesn't work anymore without the electricity. We're so used to it. We are just so used to it. It's very easy to create a lot of suffering around something like that. So I take all of these experiences and I apply them to the pictures that I've seen coming out of Japan. And when I see someone standing there looking at the devastation of their home or, or on their knees crying in front of that hovel because they've lost somebody, I know that feeling of wanting to reach out and touch them one more time. And my experience of those people who are suffering so much in Japan, who don't have power, who have lost loved ones, who don't know what's coming next, is actually enriched by my own direct experience in those things that have happened close up to me, right here. When I see a woman in a shelter clutching her small child, I think of how anxious I was after our grandson was born and he had to spend another night in the hospital because he was jaundiced and they weren't sure about some of the blood tests. And I was, I'm in touch with the anxiety that arose over that and the desire to protect that child no matter what. Now, why is all of that important? What's important is not so much what I do, but that my ability to be present for it, to allow it to touch me, allows me to be in place, to stand in place when the things that happen in my life show up that are not what I wanted. 
they also allow me to be able to celebrate with extreme joy when something happens that is very joyful, like the birth of our grandson. Because my heart is open, because it isn't closed over, because it isn't calloused, because it isn't hard. And I can tell you the difference because I've noticed when that heart has cracked open and I've noticed when it's been shut down. When I first learned uh, about my friend's death, uh, another friend said, oh, did you hear so-and-so died? And my initial reaction was just shock and, and I was stunned and I immediately started talking about how this person found out and, you know, just all the stuff around it. But there was a certain amount of shutting down around the fact of this person is dead. It was like I was not going to allow that in. And later my husband and I went over and we were socializing with friends and I casually brought it up. Well, you know, so-and-so died. And, and in, in the moment of, of doing that, Something turned, turned in my body, and it was as if I suddenly saw, oh, he died. And suddenly I didn't want to stay in the room anymore. And we quickly made excuses and left the neighbors and went back home. And as I was watching those feelings in me and watching my mind, I realized that the first thing that happened is my mind just would not let it happen, would not let it be true. It's not, it's not true. And over time, it became more, took more energy to make it not be true than I could gen- engender. I had to let it be true. And even still, it wasn't until the next morning when my dear husband was busy trying to get us together, we were going to travel. I live up in Inverness, and we were going to travel down here to San Carlos to stay with the new baby and, and his parents and you know do laundry and cook food. And So we were packing up to be gone for a couple of days, and I went into meltdown and started crying about my friend. And my husband, who was just eager to go see his grandson and who never knew this person who had died, was having a hard time being with my suddenly crashing and crying about this person that he didn't even know, who happened to be male. This is suspicious. You know, why is she so, why is she so upset about this person? And I'm saying to myself, this is not the time for this. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this is that it's not important that I could find a way of being equanimous, that I could find a way of dealing with the pain, that I could find a way of not having my husband walk out in anger, but that I was aware of all of these things happening. It isn't about being good or bad. It's about allowing what is there to be there and accepting it in that form, whatever it is. And that 
it, 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 isn't, um, it isn't like a place we go when we stay there. It's, it's what we do every day, we try to do every day. We just allow what is true to be true. That's the practice. Allow what is true to be true. It isn't about being a perfect human being. It isn't about being perfectly compassionate. It's about allowing what is true to be true. So there is the truth of his death. There is the truth of the memories that I had. There is the truth of my sorrow. There is the truth of my regret around not seeing him the last time he asked me to come see him. There is there is the uncertainty about how to hold all these feelings in the presence of my husband who wants to do something else. And to allow all of that to be there and to allow myself not to know what to do. Because it isn't about doing. And eventually I put myself back together We got in the car, we drove down here, I picked up that baby, and then it was all about that baby. That beautiful baby. That always brings a smile to my face. And I believe that to the extent that I could feel the pain over my friend's death, I could feel the joy around my grandson. I think if you can't choose, I'm going to close down now and open up there. I think we do that. But I think to the extent that we try to control that, how open our heart is, we're limiting our ability to experience life as it is. This this opening up and being with whatever is arising. And it's all practice. It's all, okay, today I'm able to do this. (laughs) Today I noticed that. It's been an hour since I thought about anything. (laughs) I'm on a story. I have a story running. I'm off thinking about whatever I'm thinking about. Oh, the in-laws are here, and today we have to... So all of the times when we notice, especially some strong feeling, some strong emotion, is, is a great time for investigation. Because very often what we first think is my feeling, my experience, is only the thing that's on the top. There's this wonders, wonderful story that, that I have heard, I think, I think I heard this story from Gil, actually, about a teacher that everybody loved. This teacher was known for, for leagues around him as being someone who knew exactly the right thing to say to you. And so people would travel to see this, this guru, this hermit, to get his advice. And it wasn't easy to get there. It was a two-and-a-half-day trek into the mountains, and they would get there, and they would tell their problem to this hermit. And he would first get them to say that they would not 
tell anyone what his advice was. Very important. Do not tell anyone my advice for you. And once they had agreed to that, then he would say to them, he would, he would give them the advice. The secret was he never gave any advice except one. One. And that advice was, what are you not paying attention to? And people would say, that's it? That's it? And then they'd have the two-and-a-half-day trek back out of the mountains, and by the time they got out, they were convinced this was the wisest thing anybody had ever said to them, and they would continue telling people, this, this man is wonderful, you need to go to him for advice. Because what he pointed out, the thing that we all need to hear, is what else is happening? What are we not paying attention to? What are we not paying attention to? Because the mind is a very clever thing. It very quickly goes to some place and decides this is the meaning of that. This is what this does. Oh, I know what this is. And by leaping to that first place, we very often miss what else is happening. So when we have an opportunity to say, what else is happening? I know I'm upset. Well, it's because my friend died. Well, you know what? There was something else happening there. And the other thing happening there was that when I was very close with this friend was the last year of my marriage, my ex-marriage. And there was still a lot of grief around that that thinking about him triggered not that the end of the marriage was a bad thing, but who wants their marriage to end ever? You want it to be different. And being able to see that peace along with the grief of missing this person was very valuable for me. It was valuable for me to be able to let that peace out again. It was an insight that I might not have gotten that there was still some grief 25 years later. <laughs> a long time that I was carrying around with me. And to honor that there was some sorrow associated with that and then let that go. It doesn't mean that that grief will never show up again. It only means that that influences what I do in my life. And it's a nice thing to know that that's there. All of us have examples of this. We think one thing, and something else is also there. Because we can't look at everything. I could be sitting here thinking about whether my spine is straight. But I can't be doing that and be thinking about whether I did the proper thing with my husband this morning about opening the garage door. I can't do everything. I can only look at one thing. Even sitting here, if I'm thinking about whether my spine is straight, I also am thinking about whether I'm speaking to you. I'm, I'm also wondering... Do they hear what I'm trying to say? 
There's a lot going on in this room, right here, this room. It's a very complex scene. And we can only see what we look at. So what else is happening? What else is happening? And what, are, what am I not paying attention to? One of the ways of, of asking the question, what am I not paying attention to, is to an exhibit an, a willingness to stay in the space. Okay. Now, what I mean by that is very often when we meet something that's uncomfortable, pleasant or unpleasant, we have a tendency to say, Oh, I'm uncomfortable. I have to change this. I have to fix this. And maybe it's, oh, I shouldn't be sad now, so I have to put that aside. And maybe sometimes that's appropriate. But the way we do that might affect our ability to function right here, right now. And sometimes the willingness to just admit, I'm sad, and be with that sadness is the same energy that's going to allow us to be with something that is really wonderful and exciting and happy and allow us to stay with that and not push it away. Because that's an easy habit to get into. So I'm holding my grandson. I'm saying, oh, isn't he wonderful? Oh, he's the best thing that's ever happened. What if something happens to him? Oh, I better not get very attached. Have you ever done that? Oh, I can't really enjoy this happiness because it's not going to be here. I remember one time talking to my mother and saying, you know, everything in my life is so beautiful that it's scary. I'm very, very grateful, but I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. And she said to me, And how do you know this is not the other shoe? Which I thought was just incredibly wise. (laughs) She did not remember saying that. But it is a way of looking at the world that reminds us to be careful about what we think is true and what we're pushing away and what we're allowing in. What are you paying attention to? One of my responses to what has happened in Japan is um, a real sadness about how much pain can be there. And you know, I, because my power's been out, I haven't been on the internet much lately, but I think that they're now projecting something like 20,000 people died in the tsunami. And one piece of my mind comes up and says, well, you know, in the Indonesian tsunami, there were 140,000 deaths. So 20,000 isn't so much. Or, well, in Libya, they'll talk about a skirmish where the 
the jets came over and they bombed the uh, anti-aircraft installation and the, the rebels said, well, we lost eight people. Now, the difference between eight, 20,000, and 140,000 is really no different. But our minds tend to sort of gloss over when it comes to a big number. And it isn't 140,000 individuals. It's just 140. It's a number. It becomes a number. And I think because I have just lost my friend, I am now thinking, my God, 20,000 people and their families are all devastated. Or eight rebels have been killed. What about their families and their lives ended? And I feel it in a much more acute way. Because I'm, I'm realizing that it isn't a number. And I feel it right here. And the meaning of that number takes on a different feeling for me. And I feel like I am with those people. I'm with those people. You know, the circumstances of my life do not allow me to jump on a plane and go over and hold someone's hand. But it makes me much more gentle with my husband when he leaves the car door open that I can't reach and goes and opens the garage door and waits for me outside. (laughs) And I get out of the car, go around, close the car door, get back in the car, close my car door, drive out. My willingness to do that with a chuckle is much more vivid for understanding that we are all experiencing displacement of some sort, anxiety of some sort, that we all experience this. And this gives rise in my heart to a willingness to allow other people not to be what I want them to be. To ask, what's, what else is happening for them? What else is happening? What else is happening for me? What else is happening for them? And to realize that my irritation has very little to do with the, the garage door. But my fear about, am I going to get stuck in traffic and not get there on time? So what else is happening? What, what is it that allows us to meet our experience and stay with the experience before we go off and decide what it is? And we leap at the first idea that we have. And we miss. We miss what it is that really touches us. So to send love to another, you first have to be in touch with your own heart. You first have to be in touch with your own heart.
And sometimes that requires relaxing the need to be someone special. Relaxing the need to have the answers. Relaxing the need to be perfect, to be enlightened. Allow yourself to be just as you are. Suzuki Roshi said, you know, you're perfect just the way you are, and you could use a little work. (laughs) That's, That's who we are. Relax the need to be someone special. This is the way to indeed be special. To have that connection with yourself and with the world that allows us to truly experience the world and to be free in how we experience the world. So three things. Step out of the role of who you are. What else is happening? Develop a willingness to turn toward the experience, turn toward the suffering, turn toward the joy, and truly experience it. And three, stay in the room. Stay in the room. Notice the feeling. Notice the experience. What's happening? What else is happening? What else is happening? There was a, a rabbi by the name of Alan Liu, who was one of my heroes. He died a couple of years ago. He wrote a book called We Are Not Prepared, which was about the Days of Atonement. And here's what he said. This is real. This is very real. This is absolutely inescapable. And we are utterly unprepared. And we have nothing to offer but each other and our broken hearts. And that will be enough. Thank you. So those are my thoughts this morning. Do you have any comments or questions or objections? What are your thoughts? We're in the same body, even. (laughs) I'm sorry? I said it's almost like we're in the same body. In the same body? Well, we probably are. (laughs) (laughs) Just a a little while ago, I don't know, last year, I I started, I was very goal-oriented when I first started uh, meditating. And I think that stopped my, was a barrier in my path. And then I, I thought, you know, I'm not sure that that's uh, something I want because it's going to mean that I'm going to notice things more and maybe I'll have to change or I'll see the suffering that I cause myself. 
to others, to myself. And that's what has happened. Funny. <laughs> and I'm glad it's happened, but um, I like what you said about um, last night we had a speaker here, um, Cabot Zinn, Will. Is Will, mm hmm. And he said uh, that he was quoting someone, and he said, um, The one I spend the least time with is myself. And uh, I'm so struck by how self centered I was before I started. <laughs> meditating and still am but that now it's a little bit more self-centered <laughs> in a different way but not I still have a lot of the old stuff but uh, this you know when they say oh they just sit together and contemplate their navel and it seems so pointless why do I do this so I'm going to offer you a different word besides self-centered. How about self-aware? Well, that is, that, that's thank you. That is what's happening. And I'm getting more familiar with it, and it doesn't devastate me to notice things <laughs> that I show that I'm not special. Uh -huh. I love that because I think I've used that as a defense for a long time. And missed a lot. Thank you for that. I think um, I think that's a, a very important part of, of the evolution of practice. That as we as we pay attention, the more that we see, the more that we come become aware of. Really, the less closed in we are. Um, I remember uh, being on a retreat, a long retreat. It was a month-long retreat. And perhaps mm, two weeks into the retreat, when I was still enough not to be so distracted, I came to understand something about how I was in the world that I had not really seen before. And it had to do with being special. That I, I felt that I was blessed with certain talents that I had to use. And I occupied a lot of space with those talents. And two things happened as a consequence of that. One is people began to rely on me to step up and do this. And two, they never got a chance to do that for themselves. And as I was watching that and how it had been somewhat consistent over my entire life, I became aware of how much suffering I had caused for myself and others by being special. It isn't that what I did was bad. It was good. But it was causing suffering because... Neither I nor they had choices. No, this is the way it is. That has to be. And I cried for another two weeks about all the suffering I had caused in my life by just this one belief that I had. 
about being special. Now, that doesn't mean that when I'm in a room, I think I know the answer and I'm popping up. But now I catch myself popping up and I sit back down and I choose. Does this need to be said now? Does this need to be done now? Most of the time it doesn't. So thank you for that. I think it's a a very uh, important understanding and insight that knowing ourselves is actually an opening to others. I don't know what to do. You, you had my mind is like you know it's like little sparks. Everything you say, it's like oh yeah, I want respond to that, respond to that. Well, my mind is now going a mile a minute because I'm I'm thinking you know um, when you're in, when you're attuned to somebody and you're listening to what's going on, you'll remember the first things they said, and then you'll remember the last things they said, and then there's all the stuff in the middle, and I don't know. I don't even know what compels me to talk right now. But I'll just go and try to be aware that I'm not to take up too much of the time. But So you were talking about um, the things um, that challenge us uh, in terms of things we fear or things we, or the aversions. So you were saying you were making a distinction between natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis and nuclear reactors. And so, this can be quick. So one of the things that come to mind is that they're not separate, just like the mind and the body are not separate. What man makes is still a part of everything. It's a part of nature. So if we make nuclear reactors and create disasters, it's really on the same level as what the earth, the tectonic, tectonic plates shifting in the earth and making water rush in and out and creating radioactivity. I mean, it's human beings are a part of all the same system, so it's all the same. And in order to survive, we have to um, do some blocking out or denial about all the bad things that could happen to us, or we wouldn't be able to function. <coughs> On the other hand, I agree that whatever feelings come up or in the moment around your awareness of these potential bad things is you acknowledge fear is happening and then you see what happens next inside you to whatever arises around you that's how that's I think living a life anyway so that's my thoughts on that (laughs) what I do um I want to say for a living, but it's really the living part of it is inconsequential to just loving to participate in what I do with people, and I'm a psychotherapist. So um, I was thinking about this one particular person I'm working with who has a, he's a, a young man that's dealing with a lot of anxiety, 
and I have you've in my clinical thinking evolved uh, to using a lot of mindfulness awareness as as a as a tool to help people, and I have to, and I'm I'm really trying to work with him to um, stay aware of what comes up for him rather than pushing it away. Because I think the pushing it away actually makes more anxiety. Um, and he's skeptical and he and his mind is running so fast, I'm not sure I can reach him, but all, all I can do is what I can do. You know, use what I know. So, um, I'm, I'm trying to help him understand that being in the present, in the present moment, and um, stay, just staying with what comes up. So, breathing exercises. Breathing exercises, I mean, I know when I'm giving my patients a list of how to do breathing exercises, I'm really talking about the beginnings of my understanding, my experience of the beginnings of meditation to be present in the present moment. Yeah, so I have a couple of reactions. So let me start with the nuclear reactor one. Um, in a former life, I was a radiochemist. So I have some understanding of radiation and what happens with radiation. And so I paid a lot of attention to what was going on with the nuclear reactor. And the reason I made the distinction was that there were human errors that compounded the problem since the tsunami. Forget about all the things they did before the tsunami or didn't do that might have mitigated. So, so the reason I made the distinction was that what's associated with the, the tsunami, it's hard to put judgments down unless you're going to blame God. But when, you, when you're talking about the nuclear reactor, one of the other things that comes up is judgment for me. Ah, it's being mishandled. They're, they're not saying the, the truth. This is, it's clear. I, I, I was saying days before they finally admitted they, were, they had exposed fuel rods, they're, they're going to have exposed fuel rods. And all the people around me were saying, don't be so negative. But I could see that's what was happening. So, so there was judgment associated with that. That's where my mind went, was to judgment. Okay? And so for me, there was a real distinction. Not that we aren't part of the whole system, and, you know, they could have gone another 30 years without that happening. They could have been lucky. <laughs> so, so that was one thing. The other thing is um, I have a 96-year-old mother-in-law who suffers from anxiety. She's always been kind of a worrier. But now, because she can't, can't see and she can't hear, and all of her faculties, you know, she can't move around, she's on oxygen. But she's, she still has the mind of a, of a 20-year-old, and she wants to be a 20-year-old. And so all of these other things gets in the way. And so she has a lot of anxiety. So one day last week, she called us up and she said, oh, this horrible thing has happened. And my husband immediately started to solve the problem by telling her, step by step, here's what you do. You do this, you do this, you do this. And I said, that must be very upsetting. And he glares at me. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, the last time I saw this, this is where it was. And she said, oh, yeah, I saw it there once. And it broke that anxiety trip. 
But telling her how to solve the problem fed the anxiety because it told her there was something she was supposed to do about it. So that's just an observation. I think that, that when people are anxious, it's, it really doesn't... Um, that, that they need to be seen, which you're clearly doing, and they need a way to not think it's their fault. And so when you start telling them what to do, they fall back to that, it's my fault. You know, there's a, there's a trigger that our minds do. It's, this is what happens to me, because my husband is a problem solver. He's forever telling me how to solve my problems, and I just want to complain. I don't want to solve my problem. <laughs> I just want an opportunity to say, I'm unhappy about this, right? And so I don't complain to him, because... <laughs> then I have something to complain about. <laughs> so that's, a, that's an observation I would make, is that it's really hard for people um, uh, to deal with something like anxiety, because it's so, uh, even for myself, I will recognize anxiety and know that it's anxiety and still not quite know what to do about it. But I do know that when I try to push it away, I make it worse. When I try to say, I'm not going to be anxious. This is just anxiety. I'm a good Buddhist. I don't have to be controlled by anxiety. (laughs) Big anxiety. That's what happens whenever I try to say it's not there, or it doesn't need to be there, or I can triumph over it. Right? All of those things just feed the feeling for me. Whereas if I can say, oh, I'm feeling anxious. How do I know I'm anxious? This usually works for me. How do I know I'm anxious? We all know when we're anxious, right? But what does it feel like in the body? Where is that feeling in the body? How do I know I'm anxious? Well, it's, you know, I got this little tickle right here. Oh, yeah, where is it? Is it still the same place? Well, no, actually, well, you know, kind of, you know what I notice? And then, and then I'm here noticing that my hands are gripping the steering wheel and that my shoulders are hurting, and that I can release my fingers from the steering wheel. And my shoulders don't hurt quite as much. Well, yeah, not entirely. <laughs> so I, he, he was making the point that, that, um, that if I just move my hands away from the steering wheel, I'm going to have a real problem. <laughs> but, but in my case, because I tend to grip the steering wheel that just loosening my fingers still leaves me quite a bit of control over the steering wheel. <laughs> I live um, on a, a very twisty road. I travel from West Marin into the freeway. It's a you know, windy, twisty road. And, and so it's very easy to get into the habit of gripping that steering wheel because you're not just resting your hands on the steering wheel, although you can, I've learned. But you, know, you have to, because you're turning a lot, it's very easy to translate any anxiety or upsetness of various sorts, disquiet, into those hands that are gripping that steering wheel with everything you've got. So um, this is one of the things I notice about how I deal with almost everything is my hands get tight. Um, I appreciated your talk this morning, um, and it reminded me that 
well, and the comments that were made a moment ago reminded me that I've been dabbling in Western psychology and Buddhist psychology this for the past couple months. By I took a class in Stanford Continuing Studies on um, uh, adult development, and the product of this class was to be a paper which was our life narrative or story. Um, it was a, the hardest thing I have ever written, I think. Um, but, or and, once I'd finished it, there was a good deal of release and awareness that, that I wasn't going to fix those events and patterns in my past that had once upon a time and currently caused me uh, suffering, uh, including anxiety, but that I could, but that there was a way perhaps with practice move forward. Um, but I can't, you know, it, it's so strange. I can't deny what's happened in the past. That doesn't work. I've tried that many times. And, and I can't will it away. That doesn't work at all. Um, but, that, but you can, I guess you can, if you're willing to go through it again, to re-experience the feelings, each time you do, you can let, perhaps let go of a bit more of it. But but only by I think only now I think only by doing something parallel to what you just said about anxiety, which is you got to go somewhere else. You know I know my anxiety will disappear if I laugh at something. If it sounds genuinely funny, it'll go away. So there seems to be some movement here that I had never expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of, couple of thoughts. Going back to Alan Liu, one of the reasons I admired this man so much, I, I took a course from him, was he talked about uh, being with dying and being with people at the ends of their lives. And he said one of the, one of the things that he liked about it the best was the realization that people, that your life is not over until it's over. That you don't know the arc of your life. Maybe it's curving in this way, but there is nothing that says that it continues curving in that way or when that arc is going to end. And so that there is possibility until there is no longer possibility. And so that we're not defined by how we got to this point. We are the product, perhaps, of how we got to this point. We're all the things that have occurred in our lives. But we are not defined by that. I am not that person. So, so in looking at uh, I'm going to make a distinction here between Buddhism and, and psychology. Because I think that 
what this speaker t- spoke about uh, is that he performs a service with his clients in examining and trying to understand what the psychological makeup of their lives is and how that can be used to end a certain kind of suffering in their lives. This is why they've come to see him. And that there is great value in this psychological examination uh, and, and understanding what's happened that will give you insight going forward. But the Buddhist point of view has more to do with am I clinging to it or am I pushing it away? So to the extent that... So it's a, a different philosophical uh, perspective. So to the extent that I am clinging to what's happened, I am this kind of person, I am creating suffering in my life. All evidence that I have gathered in my memory bank about why I claim to be this kind of person is simply my memory bank that is somewhat defined by the habit of mind that's, that causes my mind to look at these things and not these things. That what else is happening question applies to our memories. We don't remember what has not impacted us in a certain way. But it happened also. And so what we remember are things that had an emotional charge for us for some reason. And those things can continue to be sources of suffering only to the extent that we repeat them because we believe we are this way, or we have, we're re-examining them to understand something. But the Buddha doesn't expect you to do that, wouldn't expect you to do that. The insight comes from noticing the habit of mind. But we are, no, we are not required to repeat the habit of mind. It's simply a habit. So when it arises, we notice it. We act on it. We don't act on it. So the lack of suffering arises out of staying in right now. And the suffering arises from trying to fix what you've you've identified as something you don't want to do because it's clearly not possible to fix, right? <clears throat> what, what, what is that phrase? Forgiveness is uh, giving up all hope of a better past. It's happened. That's old stuff. It's old stuff. And, and all, it, we can't even control what's going to happen in the future. I have no way of knowing I'm not going to become you know, just as painful to myself and others around me as I have been in the past. But right now, I'm not going to do that. So, give yourself some freedom. Thank you. I, I did learn that, that I was clinging to certain elements of my past uh-huh. uh, as I wrote that paper. Um, major elements, anyhow. Um, and I found that I don't want to cling to them anymore. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're all Hi. gone. Oh, no, they're not gone. No, no. <laughs> that's, that's the nature of habit. <laughs> I think we have another question back here. So We'll make it quick. Um, 
I work with patients who have cancer, and I treat them. So I've had a really hard time the, with the having empathy and then um, not letting me affect after I'm done with my work. So your talk about um, noticing other things, it really helped me, and I want to thank you for that. It's, it's a real simple concept, but when you work with people who are, who are suffering every day and feeling for them, it's difficult to notice other things, and um, that's it. Yes, yes, yes. You have, uh, you have my admiration for the work you do. Uh, one of the, uh, because I'm a hospice worker, uh, I meet a lot of people who die. And uh, sometimes it becomes very difficult. But one thing that I know is that it is also a great honor to be with people in extremis. You know, to, to be with people who have no choice but to be real. And I allow those feelings in, and I allow them back out. And so when I notice that I am getting uh, overwrought, over, I'm taking the... the, the uh, empathy is the ability to feel with, but when we take it on, we've moved into another realm. So we're, we're taking responsibility for something. So when I feel myself doing that, somehow I should ease the, the suffering of this person. I remind myself that, that by my very willingness to be there and receive their pain, I have done as much for them as is reasonable for me to do. And I imagine that pain washing through my body and into the ground, that we're part of an infinite circle and that it's shared with everyone. And sometimes I physically move my hands to remind myself of that. I, I once gave a talk when I was very upset, and I realized I was moving my arms around, and I would stand up and talk about... It happened to be a talk that allowed me to do that. I would stand up to gesture, and what I was really doing was moving pain through my body to, to allow it to pass on. So I offer you that also, that, it, that, that we don't need to hold that pain. We can feel it and allow it to pass on and to not fail to notice the sweetness of the strawberry that we have for lunch. So I want to just close <clears throat> with a poem by Stephen Levine called uh, Meditation Blues. <laughs> you know you're going to like this, right? Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. Cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding so impersonal we take it personally. Sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. 
Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. And sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. May you all be happy. Thank you.